clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hello, everybody out there, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Tyrion, which is really, it, it's, it's the next chapter in a conversation that me and my dear co-host have been having for ages now and will continue to be having, but we are manifesting it now in the form of the Tyrion podcast's co-host, Welcome, welcome everybody to our playground here today. Hello. Hi, Sam. <laughs> Jordan, I'm so excited to continue talking about the thing we were talking just five minutes ago about and yeah. have been for our entire friendship. Yeah, yeah. Like this is, I have, I have a dear friend, his name is Jason, and he considers like, he, he like thinks of life in terms of, of memoirs. And so like, you know, when, when like a, a new Taylor Swift event happens, he considers that. He's like, well, Jordan, this is just the next chapter in, in, the, in the story that you've been writing your entire life. It's like, yes. And, and this, this is one of those things. Ox Tyrion, the canonization in our specific way of the millennium era horror film segment. That is just, that's a conversation that I've been having for so long and that I will continue to have. And I'm glad now that me and you are codifying it because there, there's truly nobody I would rather have right by my side for this. Uh, same to you, friend. Yeah, well, what, what, are we, what, are you, what are we doing here, Sam? Why? Why the Ots Tyrion? I mean, I want to say it all comes down to the boots that Sophia Bush wears at the end of The Hitcher, but let me dial back for a second. Mm -hmm. We are here to discuss 2007's remake of The Hitcher, starring Sophia Bush, who is absolutely underrated as a final girl. No, you're absolutely correct. And the purpose of Ots Tyrion is to, I think uh, I can comfortably say that me and Sam both seek to sort of not destroy the film canon as it exists, but reimagine it in our image because that's fun. And because the canon was set, uh, the canon has been set for a very long time by a certain sort, a segment of fandom and criticism that often looks very similar and has often kept a lot of different voices out. And it's often, it can often feel very self-serious and sort of alienating. And it makes it feel like there's a right and wrong way to enjoy things. When I think me and you are, we really sort of epitomize the spirit of there is no right and wrong way to like something. It just has to mean something to you. Oh my God, I answered that question wrong. I thought you were being like, like what brought us to this episode? Girl, what brought us to this yeah, podcast? To this is, podcast. <laughs> we're going to burn it down. <laughs> yeah. I I am just tired of the same old programming and I'm tired of the fight to say that as soon as a movie just from the past just gets a little bit popular, everybody's like, ooh, but I liked it first and I was tweeting about it being this or that. Yeah. No, here's the thing. We need to reevaluate the movies that we love mm-hmm. and if we love them, call them great. Mm-hmm. Not and not anything else. Not anything else. You know else. what? I don't care if that other movie is is technically perfect. Right. If you only watched it one time, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but I watched The Hitcher 55 times. That's why Sophia Bush's boot is important. <laughs> that's why. That's why the boot. That is why the jean mini skirt, which deserves to be enshrined in the. Uh, a motion picture museum that has been supposed to open in Los Angeles for years now and allegedly will someday, that oh um, her, her smoky voice must be honored and, and respected. Um, yes. The, the, yes. the flat ironed hair that develops into a gentle beach wave. Oh. See, and that's, and I think that's the aughts, which we are gathered here today to recognize, is a period of time that is so aligned with a, a, an aesthetic 
and a sort of vibe as much as it is narrative themes and a sort of nihilistic violence and everything being kind of blue or chartreuse, like everything mm-hmm. looking kind of sweaty or sick and really um, sort of like sick, but also sexy. And the sort of the Michael Bayization of horror at that time, as far as a, a palette and a sheen goes, a sort of a patina of sweat on a little bit of everything. And it's a, it's, it's like an era of horror that I see as something that is not yet far enough just it's just about there but to this point has not yet been far enough behind us to be considered hollowed ground and considered a classic and it's so it only it, it has been living it's its legacy has been living in in the people who grew up watching these movies at sleepovers people like me and you people our age around that sort of 30 something bracket but what i want to do is like i want to help usher in an era where the homage du jour is not cinema of the 1980s though i love it i want our period pieces to start being set in 1997, in 2003. That is that is what I, I would like to see a next era of horror come to. And I would like to see in concert with that, a reappraisal of the movies that came out at this time that I think were largely written off as superficial and find the value in them for, for some the some that have stood the test of time, which I thoroughly believe the Hitcher remake did, and others that are so emblematic of their time that they are these perfect treasures in and of themselves to look at as as like almost having existed in a hyperbaric chamber where we can examine so much about the 2000s millennium era horror zone and almost like looking back in time while we're doing so. I think the part of doing that is going to be actually examining what it is that makes something so utterly 2000s. Yes. And that is the joy of coming here today because I want to pick all those things apart and not only uh, celebrate them, but also laugh at them because they're funny yeah (laughs) laugh at them because they're funny and and not extricate the joy from the merit and not call those things that have to be in competition with each other and say that they can they can exist in concert and that indeed just enjoying something that isn't necessarily a precursor to the a24 brand of horror that is very vaunted today and that again I do love but I as I've said more and more lately and will say again I want to have a balanced diet of horror and I feel like there is such a there's so much to learn too from the 2000s because it is such a messy time as far as representation goes as far as progress in the discourse goes we are on the cusp we're moving out of a sort of antiquated way of thinking of like black and brown characters and queer characters, but we are in no way where we are. We sit in 2020 with the language to actually discuss and critique, evaluate um, shortcomings in representation, successes in representation. It's this middle ground where things are getting gayer, but there's also a ton of passive homophobia and like having characters of color is becoming more normal but they are in no way getting what being honored as fully fleshed out characters as they deserve to be and we weren't talking about things on that scale at the time so it just it's such a it's such a cusp zone between the old ways and the new ways I think it is this fascinating like suspension in time of the genre so Jordan the question is yes how do we define the odds? This is this is a very important question. You're right. I've done a lot of talking about the 2000s, but we have not d- defined the 2000s. For me, and I would like to hear your perspective on this as well. For me, 
Um, I like the sound of the, the, the title of the podcast is called Ots Tyrion, but it is a bit misleading because I'm not, in my mind, I don't define this segment of films as is to the proper zeros. Like it is not 2000 to, to 2010. It is, for me, there's a soft, there's a runway. There's a runway that starts in like the Kevin Williamson era, which so it gives us, I'm going to say about like 1996 because Kevin Williamson really reignited, Kevin Williamson reignited horror with, and Wes Craven with Scream. And then he, you know, subsequently goes on to write, um, what is it, Disturbing Behavior and just I, multiple ones that I'm forgetting, but he's he's the, the fucking architect of the time, uh, the faculty. And that is what, A, re-kickstarts horror as a sort of populist um, money-making bet that had kind of tapered out after the <clears throat> the sequel explosion of the of the 1980s. And it also introduces the sexy cast which is something that will carry through and be a defining element of the entire 2000s. So I think we we begin with the Scream era. And for me, that's the runway. And then there's then there's the sort of like, there's the lag after 2010, where there's a few that are kind of, the, the, the few that are sort of following in, in the fumes, movies like The Roommate, which I couldn't possibly leave out because yes. it is too essentially it, it fixed to the DNA of the 2000s, and I think in part was not as successful as a fun movie like that could have been because we had left that time behind a bit. In terms of The Roommate, mm-hmm. which is 2011, yeah, that is about where I would tag the end of it for me. Now, I'm not saying it's a hard rule yeah, because I'm sure there will be something where I'm like, ah, shit, that does feel a little odd. Texas but, Chainsaw but to 3D me, to me fits in it as well, and that's about does. 2013. But yes. I, I, I hear you as like that being a – there are, of course, exceptions, but I think that's a yes. good general cutoff. Like, there are exceptions. I feel like that's when things really kind of came to a close. Yeah. Um, it, The beginning of it, I would pinpoint definitely in that 96 era. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, that you def- you nailed it with the Kevin Williamson stuff. I mean, Scream yeah. came along and changed everything. But there are a couple of titles around that time mm-hmm. not related to Scream that we'll definitely be digging into. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, like there – because you have – like you, you begin it with Scream – I think the craft sits in that era too. Like the craft is 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 unmistakably '90s, but it also exists in this ensemble, teen yes. screams way that feels the horror. Of, the horror of the '90s is so fascinating because it's so eclectic. Because it's such a bridge time. Like you have movies like Jacob's Ladder and Silence of the Lambs. There's a lot of really fascinating stuff going on in the '90s that feels apart from the millennium sensibility that can that gets kicked off with Scream. And here's the biggest reason why that stuff bleeds over, the video store. So yeah, that's a great the, point. For our generation, um, things that existed in 96, 97, 98, I mean, some people didn't access them until 2000, 2001. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And on rental, we would get them again and again. Mm-hmm. So those things were very much a part of our, it recently happened and now we have access to it a year later, being pushed on a bit. Like those sorts of things happened in a way that was very big and yeah. a cultural moment for a film was longer than three months. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting. It's almost like informally, it almost come, becomes a kind of cutoff with like, as the aughts horror fades, social media rises. Yes. So it's almost like just conveniently, I don't think this is like a causation cor- correlation kind of thing, but it's almost like as that era of of socialization and the way we interface with each other um, in the world changed, so too did this time in horror and the the values and priorities assigned to it 
And like with the rise of like you have influencer culture rising as these movies are dying. And it's just I, I, that to me is just a sort of fascinating sort of tangent off of it. Because I, I think uh, an, int- an integral aspect to me of millennium era horror, and I've talked about this a bit before, is that it comes at a really toxic time in celebrity culture. There is a great hunger for access to famous people and there is a booming paparazzi industry and you know blogs like delisted and perez hilton and the superficial and gawker are really on an ascent and they're they're a big part of like the the online entertainment culture and they're they're not nice it's a time where like we we watched a movie recently sam where you said it was was a final destination too and you mm-hmm. mentioned you're like, or was it the quiet? We uh, uh, during a movie night watched those gems back. Friends, to back. it was a double feature. It was a double so. feature, so it could have been one or the other. But where you said every joke has to be snarky in the 2000s. That's it. It's marked the humor of aughts horror, yeah. and actually just aughts films in general. Absolutely. The humor is snark. Yeah. It's it's not. I don't. Know, and most of the time, it's not LOL snark. No. It's just snark. It's it's it's. There's a there is a vein of cruelty that runs through the snark humor of the 2000s that feels very reminiscent of an earlier time in horror, like the the 70s, when you would have, like, high school mean kids who were really fucking mean. Like, where it wasn't, like, you know, there's always a kind of redeemable element to the bully now. There's a humanization. Even if we are still meant to root against them, there is a, a depth of character. Whereas the stock shithead was so much more cruel in older movies. And I think that in the nihilism of the 2000s, that was absolutely something that was brought back. Like, cruelty was a sort of currency of the realm in, in humor. And there was, and the, the tone of online celebrity commentary and culture, again, like, the, the pre-sincerity era of, like, Perez, making fun of people and ripping them apart was the point. Jokes was the point. And there was a voracious appetite to consume people who were still beholden very much to a marketing machine that looked like old media with getting in magazines, being on covers, having publicists traffic you. You were utterly subject to how other people wanted to frame you. And it was before the era when social media put a little bit of that back into the hands of of the famous where they could sort of dictate image management. And they, because they could put out images themselves whenever they wanted, the idea of selling a paparazzi shot of somebody coming out of the fucking store or carrying their coffee beans wasn't going to be worth as much because we could see people in their home gyms making weird faces like the access was so much more more intimate and so much more on demand and so I think the the fact that celebrity culture was at such a weird cannibalistic pitch then is goes exists in in hand in hand with the fact that a super fun thing about millennium era horror is that like you weren't in these movies because you weren't famous you were in these movies because you were if you were yes. Jessica Biel at the crest of her fame, you were in Texas Chainsaw 3D. If you were if, if you were a star of the moment that we could novelty cast into one of these movies, if you were, let's put Tyra Banks and Busta Rhymes in Halloween Resurrection, let's put obviously Paris Hilton in House of Wax in Repo the Genetic Opera, like that was, oh, mm-hmm. there's a way we can market this off of you and that is also a savvy move for you career-wise. Yes, this is mutually beneficial. But I and I think that is is something to do too with the with the sort of exposure game that was being played at the time because these movies were getting a lot of money they were very high profile and they were they were being marketed to huge audiences so there wasn't a tension between horror quality and star power it was just like let's fucking cash in 
And I think that combination of cynicism, beauty, opportunism, uh, cultural, a cultural portrait in time, all of that, to me, it makes such a, it, it to me is an ultimately fascinating era of our culture. I think the biggest reason I, I feel excited to just have this conversation in a, in a much bigger way with you is because so often that it, this moment is overlooked, I think because those negatives, the things like the nihilism, yeah. like what was happening politically, um, the kinds of things that were being, I almost feel like sanded down mm. film-wise yeah. to the point of being so smooth they didn't have any edge. Yeah, smooth, um, smooth literally like in the people and smooth like as a meta commentary, I think is absolutely both true. That it makes it difficult to even, um, it makes it it makes it at first difficult to embrace something at a time when, uh, a time that really wasn't very happy, yeah. <laughs> maybe in a lot of ways, yeah. um, and, and that we're glad that we moved on from. Mm-hmm. But I think that in retrospect, we see in the trash that there is much to be reclaimed. Yes, agreed. And in, in if we can, Talk specifically about 2007. Yes, I think um, that is the perfect that is the perfect pivot, Sam. Let's talk. Why I'm excited about it is because, like you measure your life in Taylor Swift moments, or you had mentioned yes. that earlier. Yes. Um, for me, I remember everything. Was it before 2007 or after 2007? Fascinating. Because in January, uh, January was when the Hitcher came out. February was when Britney Spears shaved her head. Oh, wow. So okay. if you divide all of the, like, our American Celebrity culture. culture fucking yes. voracious celebrity culture. Because when you look at the the way that the paparazzi had been up until that moment, yeah. it had been unchecked. Yep. And then everything began to snowball mm-hmm. fast. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it didn't change immediately. But what we're looking at is, like, 2006. We've got Lindsay, Paris, uh, yeah. and... Britney all in the same car, yeah. right? It was and we're celebutantes. And, and, that kind of that kind of image yes. chasing was glamorous. And so by 2007, to have this moment, this complete meltdown that people were, that people had ultimately created by their demand yep. of access to these people, um, it was it was a it was a strong moment to uh-huh. be in, uh, where uh, that became kind of a meme. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, it's like, oh, well, if I can make it through, if Britney Spears can make it through 2007, I can make it through anything. Well, that and then, and we have, we have the, we see the, the, the aftermath of that in Britney Spears getting a full Atlantic cover story done on her in 2008 that is yes. entirely about embedding with the paparazzi that are following Britney specifically in the wake of what has happened to her and it yes. creating a portrait of this interesting and frightening, um, almost reciprocal ecosystem where Britney was kept present in the media by these people who were feeding off of her. And there's a fascinating vignette in that feature where they're all surrounding her car, I think in like a parking garage. So she can't get out. But then once she starts backing out and she's having trouble like navigating around, like I think there's a pillar or a column or something in her way, there's a group of paparazzi men like, like waving her out and guiding her car. Like, okay, a little left, a little right. And they're just let, they're not photographing while they're doing it. They're just helping her. And then she gets out. She's like, okay, thanks guys. And then drives off. And then they get back in their cars and they start following her again. Yeah. And that is the tenor of the weirdness of celebrity culture at this time. And that is the starting to examine the repercussions. Like that's 08. So that's examining the repercussions of what has come to that point and what you're talking about coming to a head in, in 07. So if we measure, so to me, that's why I'm so excited that this is episode one, because 2007 to me is aughts 
peak. Now, okay. I'm not saying it's the best stuff that came out of the sure. Amits, but it is where the culture had its own car crash. Yeah. It's like all of it hit itself. Lindsay Lohan went to jail in November. Oh, my God. We had um, the Vanessa Hutchins thing happened less than a year later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, and this is all in, in Bush's last year in office. <laughs> yeah. So oh, my God. It is, so politically, yeah. we're looking at a time when um, – the, a person was elected into office who who was elected on running on the idea that he would amend the constitution to keep gay people from being married. Yeah. I mean, we are looking at a different, a time that is hostile mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways, which is interesting talking about paparazzi culture, but queers like Perez Hilton, who I think are the scum of the earth rose to popularity by reclaiming that power mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in making fun of those very aspects of pop culture that were being kind of hailed. Well, yeah, I mean, you take, it, 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 there's there's a reasonable, you can see a linear, you can see a linear arc. You can, you can see a linear progression between, you know, something, filling a vacuum where you can rise to fame and power by, as a marginalized person, by commenting with vitriol on an establishment that others you, that keeps you on the outside. So the idea of sort of playing the villain of the internet and cashing in in your way to do that, that's you exercising what power you can fabricate to have a seat at the table and be in a position of influence. And it's, even if reprehensible in its execution, it's like, what the fuck else did you expect me to do? And there is such a, there's such an anger in that way coursing through so, an anger and an indifference, but also like an excessiveness and a need for beauty and polish and a certain kind of look and the boobs, the boot cuts, the iron hair and the bronzer. Like there yep. is such a prefabricated, like take the WB and the CW and dirty them up a bit and make them a bit more adult sexy. And then you have what's ready made for horror. And it's, a, yes. I mean, textually and metatextually, it's just such a fascinating exercise in sort of the worst of us in a lot of ways. And I think that's an incredible thing to be able to look back on that has such a beautiful coat of paint on it. What a fantastic transition. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Let into, because we're talking about the car crash and then this actual movie about car crashes. Yes, But yes. I do want to point out that in 2007, the social media we did have was MySpace. YouTube wasn't dominating the stage yet. Totally. We had MySpace TV. You would log in and you would see two videos selected, recommended for you each day that would change. And then we had like, quote, MySpace, you know, we didn't even, we would follow celebrities on MySpace, but yeah. were they even on it? Right, I mean, it was like yeah. eight pictures of them. Yeah. So I think people trying to understand, seeing Sophia Bush, for example, who yeah. was coming off of One Tree Hill yeah. in The Hitcher was a draw. Huge, because so it, was a huge, it was a huge deal. Sophia Bush being in this movie, is a, like One Tree Hill was a king of the day at that time. Like that show was epic. Oh, and there was a monoculture. We had a monoculture at the time. And that was one of those shows that was right at the heart of it. And I think also interesting to point out, at the time that the Hitcher remake was released, um, the Hitcher was not available. It was out of print on DVD. Mm. They didn't reissue it for the remake, which for a lot of these, there was like a tie-in. Yeah. The Hitcher was one of these titles that a lot of people didn't know about, and I think in some right. ways still don't know about. Agreed. The Hitcher had regained a, or had gained a lot of popularity over the years by airing on HBO and just like cable hours where people were like, oh, that's what that is. Um, and... At the time, I had to like special order it. I remember because I was like, oh, I want to see the original before I see the remake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I put on my eyeliner and then went and saw it. But it was a different, um, 
it was shocking watching the original versus what we saw. So in a lot of ways, um, this remake is it, it is different than the original in, but in the best possible ways that I think a remake can be. No, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right, and I think there because I, I, I this might be incorrect, but I think the remake boom starts in earnest with that Texas Chainsaw reboot in 2003, right? I yes, yeah. Definitely. I think like the Jessica Biel Texas Chainsaw reboot is what really cements the tank top horror um, reboot machine that is now going to like dominate the landscape. And so you have this movie coming four years after. And as far as those movies go, like the reboot MTV horror era that generally gets a bad rap. I think what I really feel convicted in that. I think what would happen with the Hitcher, which it has a critical review. It has a critical like Rotten Tomatoes aggregation in the mid fifties, which for this era was high for these kinds of movies was high. But I think really too, because watching it then, I, I very much enjoyed it. And watching it recently, I loved it even more. And I thought it held up tremendously. And I really feel like what happened was there was such a rubber stamp that was put on this genre, subgenre of movie that came out at the time. It feels like it was immediately given a start value of five. So it could only hit that high it, it, no matter how anybody felt about it. I feel like it got right. lumped in with a peer group of movies that it was far better than and is actually, to me, a best-case scenario of and instead got tarnished by the reputations of the movies in proximity to it because this is a legitimately thrilling, fun, freaky-ass movie that is gory and looks good. The leads have great charisma. The villain is Sean Bean being fucking Sean Bean menace to the max. He's excellent. It's a tight 80 minutes. And I think it is actually one of the better horror, one of the best horror remakes that's ever been made. I, I will go so I would far agree. as to say. And, yes. and, I, and I'm not telling you anything you already know because you are the reason we're here today with The Hitcher specifically. And you have been talking to me about this movie. You brought it up in a, in your, your love and defense of it before I had started thinking of a reappraisal in my head. So tell me. I... You and the Hitcher, please go on. With in terms of the start value of five and relating it back to myself, I do think that when we look at 2006 was when we had like Texas Chainsaw the, the beginning. beginning. Yeah, that so was the Jordana Brewster, correct? So when you look at yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you look at the full circle, like the excitement that was around the 2003 ver- or it was 2003. Yes, uh, 2003 yeah, was 2003 was Beale, 2006 was then Jordana. 2000, 2004 we had Dawn of the Dead. It was huge. By the time 2006 rolled around and we've got the beginning, people are losing steam. The Hills Have Eyes 2 yep. is 2007. Yep. People are done. Yep. So when when The Hitcher came out, there was a lot of fatigue. Um, you know, it, it, I think that I know I wasn't going in thinking I was going to love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I did go in excited because I loved the other one. The thing is, the other one is fucking queer. So if you all haven't right. seen The Hitcher 1986, it is queer as fuck. It is. What are you looking at me like that for? Just looking. I love it uh, because the main character, Jim, picks up uh, a hitchhiker, John Ryder, uh, in kind of a fun way. He's like, my played mother by, told me never by, to do this. Played by Rutger Hauer, being, on an- being in that way that Rutger Hauer is so good at, like on another level of sort of ethereal menace. You want to know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? 
You got any idea how much blood jets out of a guy's neck when his throat's been slit? And there is a sexual tension between the two of them that uh, that is in, in a few ways made explicit, like in the moment where he grabs his leg and that kind of thing. My mother told me never to do this. Uh, what I will say is, going into this, I knew it was going to immediately be different because they have split the character of Jim into two characters. So there's Jim and his girlfriend, Grace, right. played by Sophia Bush. So immediately, I, I'm i going in thinking, uh, okay, it's going to be a, a straight fest. It's like the yeah, hetero version Jason of the Lee thing that I watched. doesn't watch. come in until later in original nope. Hitcher, and it's just C. Thomas Howell in the car with, with Rutger Hauer at the start. Right, yeah. Correct. So then I'm like, is this even going to be? And in 2007, I'm not expecting much because, look, America hated gays. So yep. <laughs> going into it, I already knew. But I do have to say this. This is the only heterosexual couple <laughs> in film that I think I truly love. I, 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 As somebody for whom that is also the exception to the rule, that is a significant thing. That is not a small thing to say. Watching Grace and Jim in this movie, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I get why straight people like each other. <laughs> I buy it. I, I, and it was, you know, as you said, this was hosted for a movie night that by, by one of your storied movie nights. And at the start of that, Sam put to the room, he was like, okay, I just want everybody to like check in with me throughout the movie, like how hot they find Jim as the movie goes on. <laughs> and like, there was an so... immediate bitchiness to uh-huh. Sam's promotion of this couple that like everybody was immediately like, yeah, but Sophia Bush is here and that's all I care about. To where, like, and I, I feel like it's rare that you will step in and do an earnest defense in the middle of something that is so quippy as movie night. But you were like, okay, to the point where everybody has to have something to say about, like, the couple, just let me make a few points. Like, and you broke down your reasoning for why you why you stand these two characters. And that reasoning will come back again and again <laughs> yeah. as we have this conversation. I will begin with the fact that I get it. You look at Jim in this movie and you're like, who is this? like wet and soggy white guy. I don't know. Who's just like a little bit soft. And Sophia Bush comes in and she's so fierce and she's so funny. And you're like, what is she doing with this guy? And you immediately clock her. You're like, oh, that's like Rachel and her boyfriend. Like, you know, your friend Rachel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoever. Whoever's and it's friend like, Rachel. Who is Insult so much Rachel better than that guy. Yeah. You know, because Rachel, she's hardworking. Yeah. You know, she gets everything she wants. She's, she's so powerful. smart. She, everything in her life, yeah. her career. But then she's got that boyfriend, yeah. Jared. And you're like, <laughs> why is she dating Jared? Yeah. And this movie... They, they introduce them like it's Rachel and Jared. Yeah. They play All-American Rejects. It's yeah. like, move along. Like, here we are. We're in a cultural moment. We know the best jam because yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> it, it is. is. No, All-American Rejects. I can't hear that song that and not still, think of That picture. album still hits so hard. So when we're introduced to them, we're thinking, okay, fuck it. You know, it's going to be this bland white couple. And then Sophia Bush has to pee. Yeah. And he's like, babe, we just left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was it's, it's the first moment of sweetness when he pulls over. <laughs> That you get to see again and again. And as the movie progresses, um, he he shows that he's a good partner who listens. And Well, there after is a beginning of, d- of deeply not listening to her. Of the deeply matter, not listening. A critical matter of yes. letting a hitchhiker into the car. Which, to the men listening out there, if you're riding in a car with your girlfriend and she says, don't pick up that strange man on the side of the road, I'm uncomfortable. Literally don't ever, ever change your mind and give in to that. We should have gone home when we had the chance. Oh, come on, don't blame this on me, all right? It's not my fault. I'm not. Yes, you are. Well, why'd you have to offer the guy a ride? I didn't offer him a ride. He asked for one. 
Right? That stupid hit clerk brought it up. And you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what else was I supposed to do? How was I supposed to know he was a sick fuck lunatic? You could have just listened to me. Thank you for not letting me skip the most important element of this movie, which is just listen to women. Yes. That's it. The whole movie, listen to women. Yep. Sophia Bush in the very beginning, they almost, the difference, the original, the hitcher, like they basically, he picks him up because he's like, oh, what's up, baby? Four in the morning, right? Yeah. But like in this version, they almost run this guy over. Like yes. there, was that, there is a different relationship with the, with the, the man with his thumb out on the highway. In yep. 2007, as there is in 1986. That, that in 1986, that sense. shit was grinder. Yeah. Now, hitchhikers are serial killers. So when he almost runs this guy over, Sophia Bush, he's like, I'm just going to get out and talk to him. Yeah. And and Jim's like, yeah, or like that. And Sophia Bush is like, no, no, no you're not. No. That guy's a creep. He's standing in the middle of the road. Keep fucking going. And here's the thing. She was fucking right. And that was 10 minutes into the movie. Yeah. She's she's fucking right. And they the, the key fight that they have is her being like, all you needed to do was listen to me. Like, he's like, how could yes. I have known? And she's like, you could have listened to me. And to his credit, Jim doesn't push back on that because he knows she, he yes. knows he was wrong in that moment. He acknowledges it. He internalizes it. <laughs> yeah. And he allows himself to become a better heterosexual man <laughs> and partner to his girlfriend. Which... Which leads us into that acknowledge that that moment of acknowledgement. I think is what immediately leads us up to. I'm going to say one of the great scares in modern horror, which is the car. Like, okay, wow. Can I before we jump in? You're the right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, off the, before the car we get into cliff. that, the car, the cliff. Here is what. Oh, the car and the cliff. Yeah. The, yes. Yep. Yep. Have you ever been in a fight with your partner? And just like it feels like the world is just on fire around you, it's like that kind of. And then there's a fucking car, and then it literally drops rains on them. from the sky. From where? And it genuinely, <laughs> it, is, it is shot so perfectly that it looks like these actors had genuinely yes. no fucking idea that a car is about to be dropped from the sky, mere feet in front of where they are standing. It is, it is, it is so, effective. so effective. And it's, again, this is an 80-minute movie. It doesn't stop. Like, you are in it the entire time. And you just get these moments where even when you think it's one of those spots to breathe, a car falls out of the fucking sky, and it's not. Here's the thing. That's the moment where this movie says, we're still a horror movie. Yeah, At the time, a lot right. of these remakes yeah. were... Uh, masquerading as horror. It's like taking the horror, and I don't mean it in a Blumhouse, like, gut it and give it a new story way. I mean, they would take the property, water it down, and just give you something, like you said, blue or sweaty mm -hmm. or, you know, and then, but at that moment, it was like, surprise, bitch, this is going to be scary. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in. Yeah. And also, to, to the credit of this film and something we still don't see enough of today, in that moment, in that argument when she says, you could have listened to me, mm -hmm. um, oftentimes it isn't made explicit and the character that's usually punished mm -hmm. is ends up being the person that warned them. And then like the yes. straight male protagonist goes to the movie and has to learn who he is and grow yeah. and whatever. But that bitch is usually the one to make it out. In this case, yeah. she says it out loud. That car fucking drops. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it, we are in a different movie. And so what would you, because like, you know, under the label of Austerion, we're talking about, you know, the, 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 the take on the Criterion Collection, which is, you know, people working in a collective that's been around since the 80s that is working to preserve 
and uh, promote works of cinematic art that has sort of grown to this like I think the the connotation around it is like it's this artisanal label that sort of documents what are the definitive films, the films worthy of preservation and resurrection and archiving and retrospectives and, you know, 4K treatments and additional commentary and cutscenes and all these things. What is and what we are saying is that on this podcast, whatever we deem worthy of going into those hallowed halls is what belongs it's there worthy. because because we say so what is what is the criterionable aspect or aspects of the hitcher for you if we're going to break it down in very simple terms it's like the scares are scary the suspense pays off yes and the performances are fantastic this is a movie I- of wonderful performances the performances let it are be underscored not just believable but i think taking doing a lot with what probably on the page is looks like very little yeah and yeah. and yet it's it they fully realize these characters in moments that are so tender which also goes hand in hand with the directing but i would say that there's one moment to me that makes it ots tyrion and that is when uh grace sophia bush's character mm-hmm. is in the shower with jim uh at the culmin, there's like a uh, almost just past the midpoint of the movie. Yeah, everything has happened. Yeah, they are totally fucked. Mm-hmm. Basically, the hitcher's been chasing them through the highway, killing people, kids, doesn't matter, yeah. whatever. Yeah, and framing them for this. There is no way out, right? And 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 instead of having this moment where they panic or like, what are we gonna do or whatever, it's just a quiet mm-hmm. scene in a motel shower. Where they're holding each other. It's not very tender. Fucking not getting crazy. I mean, this is just they are holding each other in in, I think, a great performance and the only examples of a Dave Matthews band song I would ever listen to <laughs> out of my hands. It, it is again, this movie is like peak heterosexuality for me. All of these things that are not normally my thing suddenly become my thing because they're so well done. And I think sticking with the shower scene for a moment. Being being decent does not get one a fucking gold medal. But here's, I think, in the landscape of this era of film, it is quite the thing. And I hope that the people who made this movie have warm recollections of it and feel like they were heard and seen and safe. I deeply hope that that is true. Um, you have this scene where they're not fucking. There's not gratuitous nudity. There's not a... You know, and surely I would imagine that Sophia's Sophia Bush's stardom at the time, I think, probably protected her in some ways. Maybe she was able to say, like, here's what I will do and here's what I won't do. And not just like, well, you're the lead actress and you're going to do what we need you to do because you're here on this job and do you want it or not? Um, You have the shower scene. He leaves. And then we're given, of course, the extra moments in the shower with Sophia, which... You know, we of course, the woman needs to be naked for longer, but she leans up against the the end wall of the shower where the head is head of it is, and she puts her arms up and her her breasts stay obscured by her by like her her tricep, like her the top of her arms. And that that edit could have lingered a little bit longer. That edit could have been, let's hang around for a couple extra seconds and let's see her move a little bit and we're gonna see we're gonna see more of the skin show here. And it doesn't do that. And sexiness is fine sexiness is good I like it I want it I support it that shot is very sexy without going into the realm of displaying this person's body in a way that was gratuitous that was unnecessary and then too we have her shortly after that she gets in the bed and like 
the hitchers come into the room. She doesn't know she's going to sleep. She thinks Jim's like running his hand up her leg and she's like getting, you know, turned on. She realizes it's not him. She dives out of the bed and she's in underwear and a cami. But like, listen, what was she going to do? Get fully dressed again? She wasn't naked. The idea of that costuming choice actually made sense and it wasn't just her in a bra and panties. She runs into the bathroom and like, goes first thing we don't need to see an extended bathroom scene in which she's holding a gun wearing nothing but a cami and underwear she puts her iconic mini skirt and boots back on and then she's in fight mode again and i think there is a tastefulness in that sequence that works like you have the surprise interjection of tenderness where there is also the re the re-establishment of suspense and putting the movie really into the hands of sophia on her own which i love that I think is handled very well. And I think that is an exception to the, I wouldn't necessarily call it a classy era of horror. And I think it's a classy, I think it's a classy moment in the movie. I think, yes. And and thank God, because in a classy moment in a movie, in an era where that doesn't exist, yeah. in, in, in a year in a- <laughs> that is absolutely not classy. Uh, but what I would say is the tastefulness, the tenderness, but also the subversion of tropes yeah. that they're sneaking in there. Yeah. Because normally, so Jim leaves the shower. So what happens here really when when Jim and Grace are holding each other is the acceptance of the fact that, yes, he should have listened. But she's not going to just sit here and berate him. Yeah. Because that's not who she is. And they love each other. And he's not going to just keep apologizing. He's going to try and do something about it. So he leaves the shower and leaves her there. And there is this realization, I think, that she might be on her own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even even though they're they are very much together, and following that, it really sets us up for a magnificent scene where nothing like this has been done before, in my opinion, up until this moment in the odds. Jim is put between two trucks, and Sophia Bush's character has to essentially talk the hitcher down before ripping Jim's body apart. Now in the old version, yeah, this is, a, this is a recreation of that iconic scene from the original film where Jennifer Jason Lee's body yes. is the one that is up for grabs. Yeah. And if you, and to really, you know, I, if you haven't seen it, you know, obviously spoiler, sorry, but um, it's been 13 years. Get on it. Uh, what we say, but what we mean between like a truck is that hands have been chained. Ankles have been chained hands are attached are hooked to a hitch on the trailer of a semi truck and jim is now the connecting mechanism between the engine between the 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 truck itself and the trailer behind it so as that truck pulls forward it is ripping jim in half and sophia gets in the car gun to the head of sean bean our hitcher as he is daring her to kill him but warns her, if you kill me, I will pop the clutch. Like, my foot will leave the clutch. I will pop it. This truck will lurch forward and will tear Jim in two. And is a, maybe one of my favorite gender swaps I've ever seen. I will shoot you. You shoot me. My foot comes off the clutch. Now get in. Get in! In doing that, it changes everything about I feel like the meaning of the film and it's making a bold statement about women as what as who women are in the odds as final girls. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is not just a challenge for Grace in that moment, but it really is an acceptance that the old way of thinking, the not listening, 
the uh the the going on and thinking that Jim is going to be this protagonist yeah. is 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 the default assumption and it's wrong and it's changing yeah. and it's going to be that iconic skirt. Mm-hmm. And I And it's I, not going to be a girl in a skirt being made exactly. to scream for the camera. Yes. And in this moment everything changes because what I would say other than that um as far as what what defines it as uh, it's Tyrion. Would I? I mean, the easy answer for me is the Nine Inch Nails closer. Oh yeah, no, we'll we, we will transition. I think shortly into a discussion of the set pieces in this movie that are. But but that's that's what makes me love it. Where this is what makes it a film worth re-examining. Mm-hmm. No, and I I for me a, from the sort of thirty thousand foot view, what is essential? Like one of the I, I think this will be one of the most defensively, not just subjectively, but I think objectively defensively, Austerian selections, and why I'm so glad we're starting with it, is that I think this movie is actually a best case example of what this decade could give us at its at its highest level of output, because it is the remake fever, it is the sexy cast, it is the zeitgeisty star at the center of it. It is Platinum Dunes. And mind you, just for background, the studio Platinum Dunes ignited this with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then went on to produce the Amityville Horror, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning, Friday the 13th remake, and then a Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street remake. Like, this studio was very much the the highest profile being owned by Michael Bay, sort of red blood coursing through this era, like what Platinum Dunes made and then the Saw movies, I think are sort of the most famous associations with what millennium, like proper 2000s, zero, like 0 0 to 10, um, what the embodiment of that was. And I think what you have in The Hitcher is the best case example of what that 0 to 10 run looks like. You have a tremendous example of a horror remake where you're taking, you're taking the, you're, you're cashing in in a way, even though The Hitcher was a bit of a down ballot title. You're taking that that legacy thing, that great premise that already existed. You are adhering to it because it's good. But you're not trying to recreate the mentality and the energy of the original. This movie is, in its frequency and its aggressive, assaulting style, a 2000s movie. This movie's fucking bloody. This movie looks like everybody is sweating the most, like, attractive possible amount and no more. It it is the mini skirt. It is the it is the boots that Sophie is wearing. It is the presence of Bush. It is the color palette. It is for some reason young people are driving classic cars on long t- road trips. It is the soundtrack. Like it nails that aesthetic of the era. So it actually takes the remake and doesn't so slavishly try to recreate the original to make you go, why didn't we just watch the original? And it makes it takes it to the time where it actually makes its own period piece. The Hitcher, the Hitcher remake is a wonderful period piece so as it is a really entertaining horror movie it is also a perfect place in time like kind of movie to where you don't look at it and think like wow that's dated now you look at it and you're like wow that's a slice of life from how the time was then it doesn't feel kitschy it doesn't feel like wow we, we, we wouldn't do that anymore it feels like taking your little you know taking a telescope and looking into the past and seeing this artifact of a time and being able to learn so much about it from that movie and it's filled with great performances because obviously you have you have what Sophia Bush is doing in a tremendous final girl term. Zachary Knighton is 
very is truly endearing as Jim. Sean Bean just seething and terrifying as John Ryder. And then you have a great interjection from Neil McDonough as like a desert right. town lieutenant being all of the like untrustworthy, st- still untrustworthy good guy that he can be. And you have mm-hmm. the violence of the 2000s. You have that kind of like feeling of sick in it. And so I think it, I, I think it is the sort of platonic ideal actually of what millennium era horror could give us in, a, in the post 9-11 realm particularly in that post 9-11 realm and then I think too like you said this movie reminds you it is fucking horror and it gives you tremendous succinct perfect set pieces throughout that it doesn't like it's not just like let's keep making things explode because it's fun they jump in at just the right time to remind you how intense this movie is the falling car the um the closer scene, the Nine Inch Nails closer scene that is an action thriller spectacle set to Nine Inch Nails closer and the conclusion itself. Sam. We have to stop for closer for a second. We do. We, do. we have to honor they're, that. They're on the road. The, the hitcher, they might have just lost him. Yeah, right? they might have. They like, just, they keep, again, they might have just lost him. Because it's always just on the heel. But like also the police are trying to get them. Yeah. Are they totally fucked? Here comes a helicopter, and then you hear like, yeah, <laughs> and it's like, oh god, that is that's Nine Inch Nails closer. Yeah. my body knows this. I'm already responding, and I don't even know what's gonna happen. And then comes the Hitcher. Yep, and he's there to fucking kill every goddamn cop in this movie. He's there to take so, down a helicopter with a fucking handgun, and and it's gonna work. Well, it was a very, very flimsy helicopter. It was a very balsa wood, practically. It, I mean, really. And and also, I mean, his aim is so <laughs> unreal. Un- unreal. <laughs> unreal. And, but. and you have the wonderful, you have the wonderful edit in this scene of it's the, 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 the on the highway and you're watching a car chase. You're getting a legitimately excellent action scene and you're intercutting it back and forth with McDonough's character, the lieutenant, who doesn't know up to this point who the bad guy is, and then suddenly Ryder comes up in a stolen police car, and you hear his deputies on the radio, oh shit, who's this guy? And it is unmasked who the villain is. So at that moment, basically, Jim and Grace are cleared, but in the process, he loses probably his entire law enforcement squad in this small New Mexico town and just hearing it over the radio as it gets worse and worse and worse. It is a perfect use of a song. And again, very odds because we don't really like lean into music as much in films now. I think because it's expensive and we're on like the 2.5 million budget kind of model. And and then this is is like a $10 million movie. What will forever make my heart sing about the 2000s is how expensive these movies got to be. It was was routine to give these movies frivolous money to make their visual dreams come true you, you just you you won't get that as a matter of routine i think ever again if you watch this movie at home and you don't immediately restart the beginning of that action sequence oh, oh. then you were probably on your phone <laughs> because <laughs> it is something uh I, I think you you cannot move past it and just simply watch the movie as is. You have to see it twice. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I, I could hear Sam's heart rate increasing f- through the computer 
I was screaming in my living room, and I've already seen it, obviously. Very appropriately, when this movie ended, which was the conclusion of movie night for that evening, Sam addressed the room by saying, it was so nice having sex with you all this evening. (laughs) Because that was was the, the level of sort of reactive hype that was happening in the room, in elation. That was happening in the room as we were all experiencing it. Some, some for the first time and others for the first time in a long time. And it, it sets, it gives you that. And that, and, and it settles you into thinking that you may have reached the end of this journey. Uh-huh. Sean Bean has been apprehended. But we're still not done. And while this in a, in a less tight movie, in a movie that at this point maybe had dragged past two hours. We're, again, about 80 minutes here. In a movie that was less efficient, might have felt like, fuck, we already ended. Like, what do you, how are you going to, how are you following up closer? It gives us our final, it gives us our final consecration of Sophia Bush as the, as the hero she deserves to ascend to be. Am I even ready to talk about her? <laughs> this is like <laughs> almost emotional. Also elation. I just, as they ratchet jubilee. up her character. Yep. Yes. It starts with her in the car, an emotional mess. Because in my favorite quote, Jim you know. Jim is dead. Jim is dead, and we are now at prisoner transfer. She's going to car with McDonough, and prisoner John Ryder is in, like, the secure van with cops. And uh-huh. you fucking know that because this movie's credits didn't roll, that something else horrible is about to happen. And we have to talk about performance here because we're just a few scenes ago, like, when, right as before Jim dies, she has that moment, I think, where she's talking, she's talking to Jim. All right, sorry, John Ryder, right? Yeah. And she's like, it's your chance, Grace chance to kill a man who's gonna kill your whiny fucking boyfriend no don't you say that don't say that to me which is one of my favorite lines yeah. because it's when such it's, a throwaway when he says like he wants to die right like uh-huh yeah. it, it, she and she's like it, those lines by the way i just need a gif of that but so i can use it for everything but don't say that don't you say that to me <laughs> but she's she is she is such a, a mess and then after this, she begins to gather herself slowly, like any good final girl. Yes. And normally, we watch a final girl kind of take on a few attributes of the killer in order to vanquish him. Yeah. And, and in become this the film, masculine. Yes. And in this film, we have uh, Sean Bean's character kind of relishing in that. He's like, he wants her to want to kill. You know, like, oh. The, I, His he ultimate wants her goal to seems to reveal itself to be once he finds he has the opportunity to de- to degrade her humanity so much that she too becomes the monster. Yes. And I think in what is so spectacular about the ending, we see her riding in that car just looking detached. She, re- she refuses to participate in the joy of... Of having Sean being caught, yeah, she's not there to relish in it. She's, she's not there to be like she's traumatized. This is this has been a fucking yeah. It, this is this is real for her. It's not like some celebration. And and then when the hitcher, it suddenly that car is fucking flipping right, or it turns, it's just like pulls over. Yeah. Um. Because really, what's happened is uh, John Ryder has killed everybody on board yeah he's 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 like de- half degloved himself and dislocated his thumb to slip out of his cuffs and kill everybody in the car yeah super easy yeah yeah um what we're given is sophia bush whole being like i'm gonna go do what i'm gonna do by sheriff walks out of there into the fire but like <laughs> crucially crucially 
his like the the car has been waylaid like another car has hit the car that she's in and mcdonough has been pinned in the car he can't get out or he's hurt and she has she looks down at his gun and she's she's clocked this earlier in the ride she sees the gun on his hip and she's just registering it then later on as she's getting out of the car she takes the gun out of the holster and as i recall mcdonough looks at her and says price that's not the answer you don't know what you're doing and she uh -huh. looks at him with only steely resolve and says, Yes, I do. And then, like, makes this amazing face, <laughs> this amazing, hot, powerful face. And then, like, reshuffle, like, kind of resets her body and then walks out of frame. And then we are going through the fucking fire to have the final meeting between Sophia and between Grace and John Ryder. This moment in the movie is why. I always wear cute shoes on a road trip <laughs> because Sophia looks so fucking good walking through that fire. She's got her mini skirt. She's got her boot. And you know what I usually wear? Like I'm wearing like flip flops or moccasins. Yeah. Right? It's a long trip. Not Sophia because she knows she might have to take a shotgun, walk through fire and have a heroic moment. And she wants to look ready. Yep. And it, as I, as, as, as queued up after we watched this movie, as I ever do in action, horror, whatever genre movies, um, the hotness of a pretty girl with a big gun, uh, despite the fact that guns are bad, that remains um, one of the sexiest things that a movie could have. And you've earned, she's earned so much her moment to vanquish the killer. Like it is a hard fought battle for her to become the, fi the, the final, the, the heroine, the horror heroine. And when she grabs that shotgun and knows exactly what to do with it, is walking away from fire, holding up, like, cocks the shotgun and then holds it up to her shoulder as she is approaching John Ryder, it is, it is powerful, it is empowering, it is erotic, and it is fun as hell. It is why I identify as queer and not gay. Yep. It's why I identify as she gray is. asexual and not just asexual. I am. Exceptions can be made. My brain is responding. My body is responding. And the thing about this moment is every man in this movie has been wrong about her. Yes, every one of them. And they and all get punished for it. Up until this final moment when Sean Bean is on his knees in front of her and he looks at her and he says, feels good, doesn't it? And now that's the moment where, yeah, maybe, right? Yeah. But every man has been wrong about her. <laughs> what does she say? I don't, I don't feel, feel a thing. thing. I don't feel a thing. I've just got a job to do right now. And then blows his brains out. In an Not some cutaway. In an incredible setup. One of the most beautiful shots in the film. It is a, a her in silhouette. You see gun up. You see you see casing into head. Brains out back. Sean Bean collapses to the ground. Sophia drops the shotgun at her feet, turns around, and shuffles away in this very specific way that hot girls wearing heavy shoes do. And it just fades to black as she is exiting the frame. Thus establishing that the enemy in this movie, unlike many aughts films that had come right before it, which is, it's not the foreigner, it's not the redneck, it is the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. 
and she has just blown a hole right through it, and she's walking away. She is not going to let that define who she is, but she's not even going to give it the satisfaction of acknowledging the trauma in that moment, in that moment. for his, him to enjoy it. In the car when she's riding by herself, sure, fine. She might cry for the next thousand miles, but not in front of John Ryder. Not in that moment. Not right she now. She doesn't feel a thing. No. Not for him. Again, it one of the most satisfying gender swaps I've ever seen. So well chosen. I the the charmingness of of Jim even taken into account. I can't imagine wanting to see him in that moment. I'm biased nope. in that way, but the satisfaction of Sophia Bush specifically, again in a movie of great performances. So you're so with her emotionally, like Sophia is ripping it apart. I, the satisfaction of the end, again after a sleek like hour and a half runtime. This is, this is this is a top shelf example of exactly what Ostirian means to means to put at the front and center of conversation. And as it kind of pulls out, and we're at or it's fading to black, you get to hear the very beginning of how we operate by Gomez. Yeah. God, just <laughs> as if we didn't already have enough. Here is the perfect song for the perfect moment. And again, I I mean, it's just. So well executed. They absolutely stuck that landing. Yep. <laughs> I mean, just pan up. Tyrion. Tyrion. And That's it. That I, I you know, we're, we're, we will mean for these to be like about a nice little tidy 40 minute journey for you guys. But this is the first episode. This one's a little, this one's a little thick because we had some groundwork to establish. We had some, we had some context to give you. But I think this, I, th- does this comfortably bring us to the end of our discussion about the Hitcher, Sam, and our in breaking the champagne glass on the good ship Ostirion? Absolutely. Uh, politeness kills. Happy 2007. <laughs> politeness kills. The patriarchy sucks. Happy 2007. And I, you know, so if you, if you, would, if you enjoyed this conversation, which I really hope you did, and I don't imagine why you wouldn't or couldn't, um we're, that is the most jordan thing you could say yeah. right now i fucking love yeah you. that that was ve- that was very on brand if you don't know the brand um I love you. yeah th- we're gonna keep doing this we're gonna keep doing this and i think it's really important to establish that you know we have people on to talk about these movies and they say what kind of movies are you guys talking about we say what do you love yep that's it what do you love jeepers creepers can't happen nothing but victor salva is not welcome on this podcast he uh he is a convicted pedophile so if you were expecting jeepers creepers one two three or however many of the fuck those movies uh exist you will not find them here but beyond that the door is open this is a celebration welcome this is a celebration and i can oh continue sam i just hope that this begins more of that conversation, which is, it is all fucking valid. It's all and valid. And if you love it, then it's worthy of love. Yep. That's absolutely true. And I think that is, I think that is the note to send us off on. If you, you know, keep keep checking us out uh, here here on the Ostereon pod. You can find me on Twitter uh, talking about this subject probably a lot. I will post uh, gifts of Grace from this movie uh, for your enjoyment. And uh, my handle is J-O-R-C-R-U. Sam, is there anything you would like to sign off with? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sam Wyman, spoiling the ends of things that you love because I think they're kind of homophobic. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Any day of the week. Yep. Get on. Get like Move the conversation forward. Don't just let it sit still and call it good <laughs> enough. So that will bring us to the end of this installment of Ots Thank you for joining us. And I hope 
that the purpose of this podcast being joy, that that is what it brought you today. So thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Where's he going? Ah. Bye.